There's a bit of Richard Branson in Ryan Trainer, a cheekiness, a realist, self-deprecating and humble, yet energetic, inspirational, and a very successful entrepreneur with several gold standard exits under his belt. Ryan is self-aware, really knows his skill set, and has a storytelling that energizes those close to him. He brings them along on a journey, not because it's good HR policy, but because he's genuine and human with a generous spirit that invites others to thrive in the work environment. In this discipline interview, brought to you by Edison Partners, you'll hear that you can't live the dreams if you can't walk the talk. Ryan's walk is down a path that is razor focused on execution. He's taken big risks, mortgaging his mum's home for a business, taken on massive debt, and as you'll hear, he's backed himself in again and again. As Ryan puts it, he gets himself into traffic. Ryan might have played snakes and ladders as a kid, as he knows that if you read too much into success, it might just lead you to overreach. Enjoy our discussion. Ryan Trainer, CEO and co-founder Adventus, welcome to Discipline. Hey mate, how are you going? I'm going to rewind with you, Ryan. Way back when, when you were a little kid, were you a high achiever or just a normal knockabout lad? Yeah, it's it's a it's a you've started you've you've started well there, mate. So I, look, I um I grew up. My parents uh, had market stalls, so I used to kind of get up from six probably at about three a.m., four a.m. in the morning, and and kind of work through to sometimes like eight nine o'clock at night. And uh, so I think we kind of grew up in a in a range of small businesses. So I was just thinking down there with my kids. Actually, I kind of learnt the lessons of you know hard work these days, like effort and work and those types of things. But mate, I, I was terrible at school, loved sport. And I think I, from a very early age, maybe based on mum and dad had, a, I guess, an eye on being an entrepreneur pretty early. So you, you're at these stalls. I've got this picture of like Hackney Markets. Hey, Governor, come over here. I've got a deal for you. <laughs> Is that uh, what, that sort of hand-to-hand combat in selling and sales? You know what? You know, you... When we had a, it was like a giftware and jewelry stall of all bloody things, right? But it was what what it was really interesting was you got to deal with so many people, and I think you know being able to get along with people uh, and understand people. You know, I think the more and more technology come in comes in these days, the less that even becomes a skill. I think having that very early on. Um, and, and being able to speak to people, young people, all the way through to kind of older people at that age. I think it was just this base, didn't even think about it at that time. I was probably crying before I got up in the mornings and didn't want to go. But I think it was a great lesson. And also, even those days, handing out change. I know it sounds silly, but working out in your mind without those types of things, they've actually all little things that have served um, me well throughout the time. It also gave me the ability to take some of that stock and sell it to the kids at school as well. So yeah. I, always, uh, I was always the king of the tuck shop yeah. back then as well. Little, little side hustle and probably developed a pretty high EQ uh, from doing that. Could get good street smarts from uh, having a stall and being involved in that. And then at school then, what were you like as a student? Uh, what did you like doing? You say you're good at sports. You're probably dreaming of playing for the Navy Blues, but uh, what about your schoolwork? Yeah, I, I uh, found it challenging back then to see the relevance, I think, um, through school. Um, I, I think if you ask my teachers, they'd say, oh, God, he was a, he was a good fella, but I wouldn't say he really lent in to the whole process. Um, so I, I thoroughly enjoyed the social aspects of school. Yeah. Um, 
I guess I picked and choose what I wanted. Uh, I don't. I haven't probably said this too much, but I think I had sixty-seven days that I took off in year twelve. Um, I kind of kind of rocked in when I I, I wanted to, which I'm actually not proud of. Um, but I also kind of think now when I look at my kids as well and what's kind of going on, you, you, you look back then and you look now is you know, I still kind of question is education kind of fit for purpose for everybody. It feels like we're benchmarking people all trying to create the same person and, and you know, what you kind of realise, um, particularly with school at that stage, is everyone's got different skills. Uh, for me, I enjoyed the process of being at school, but I, I would say I wasn't academic, which is completely ironic um, you know, considering where you've landed up being out of education for the last uh, 25 years and even didn't even go to university. So there's, I think it's uh, quite, quite ironic looking back on that. There's something in there, though, and you, you touched on something which I, I was reading something a good couple of months ago, um, talking about education and fitness for purpose, because education was never designed to be fit for the student's purpose. It was about the parents going off to work. And, you know, those were the hours the parents were at work. So those were the hours really the students needed to be looked after, the kids needed to be looked after. So education fits into an adult paradigm rather than being able to provide for the kids and how they learn and how they educate. So this uh, pandemic might have uh, opened up a few discussions about, you know, how, how to do this better. It's it's I think when we when Rach and I Rach she's actually a school teacher of all things and I've been in education. I mean, a few years back we took two years and we put our kids in a school in Bali called the Green School and it was um, applied learning, a hundred percent sustainable um, in the jungle, but realistically painting the picture of everyone. It's still a private school in the jungle, right? So they weren't Tarzan, but it was an amazing experience, all open air, and there was. Yeah, 500 kids from, you know, probably around 50 different countries from around the world. I think the philosophy for us for doing it and, and looking back through education is that like a, like a, I look at our kids and it's almost like we've got to download software on them, the operating system. And a lot of that is around kind of empathy and resilience and, um, you know, even thinking, design thinking and creative thinking. And I think education these days you know, we, we, are we actually downloading the right operating system that is going to be right for them in the future? I think education will become more like apps. You kind of download what you need. I think like our parents, they had a job for life, you know, and now with industries moving so quickly, um, you, you know, I kind of view our kids as what kind of life experiences can we give them to equip them, to give them that operating system. And then, then the learnings will become a little bit more bite-sized, I think, through life and Hopefully, you know, we kind of start revisiting um, even schooling and how that actually works in the future as well. Yeah, I think the operating system I got at school was probably a really bad version of Windows and the, the teachers kept on seeing a blue screen of death. <laughs> the wheel of death lotus note just kind of back there. It's, uh, it's, oh, uh, I can, I'm, I'm probably Lotus notes. Um, okay, so how do you get out of school? You finish year 12 where you've, you know, only done two-thirds of the classwork and didn't go to uni, you go straight into business, you think, oh, well, I'll just go and find a job or start a business. Yeah, I didn't. So I, I, it was a really interesting time. I felt like I had all this aspiration um, and energy, not quite sure what to do with it. Uh, so I, I started some, just some businesses to make some money along. So we, it sounds ridiculous, but 
I in, imported sunglasses and was selling them at all the agricultural beach festivals with a mate. We'd make a couple of thousand dollars on a weekend and I put that away and then travelled. So um, took off for a couple of years and worked at Camp America. And I think, you know, again, reflecting on that, you know, my mates are at the Lyle Plenty pub, probably on the pub tab, having a few beers back then. And I kind of went overseas and just saw how big the world was. And, you know, I think everyone should take a gap year. It gave me independence. It gave me perspective, um, probably empathy around diversity, a whole range of things that were really valuable lessons, but it also gave me, I think, that kind of wanderlust around opportunity in the world, you know, like a bigger context. Um, so that was an amazing experience. Um, and how old were you then? Sort of so I, was, I was kind of 20, 19, yeah, okay. 20. I actually came back and um, my now wife, actually, she was going over to do Camp America um, and I just thought she was going to be a beach um, front instructor and I thought if she actually goes over there, um, she's going to meet Hank and that's it's going to be all over, right? <laughs> so, so actually I convinced my dad um, and my mum and I said, look, I don't want a 21st. So they gave me enough money and I just jumped on a plane and, and met Rach in London, cut her off at the pass before she got to the US and um, we've been you know, together ever since three kids, you know, wow. years together now, so 26, 27 years together. So it was a, it was a terrific time. Um, but, and a lot of learnings as well, but definitely came back post that, you know, you know, ready to roll. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I, I mean, first of all, the story sounds like something could have been out of a movie script, uh, <laughs> some proper romance, but I do sort of not pity, but feel sorry for the younger generation now. I mean, I finished school and, sold my car and everything, took a backpack and travelled around Europe. And my kids were amazed when I tell them I had to get off a train and find a, a free phone booth at the train station in Europe in the middle of the night and try and call someone to see whether they had a room available because I didn't know where I was going. Uh, I mean, they're just horrified by that. But, it, geez, it taught you uh, how to sort of be flexible, how to uh, be dynamic and how to make the best out of any situation and with technology now a lot of that skill set uh, might not be so easy to come by it's 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 i just on that like i remember this one moment so because i hadn't gone to university i just did odd jobs so i mean i i cleaned schools i bloody worked at top man and i started a business on after school um after school sports activities for kids but also i then did a job doing security and i was on the door and I just remember this one time where one of the head partners of a big accounting firm came through and my job was to look at the pass, right? So this, he's shown he, and he said to me, look, you know, um, I said, can I see your pass, please, sir? I didn't know who he was. And then he said, oh, look, you know, I don't have it. And I said, well, you need to go and, you know, go and register over there. And he goes, do you know who I am? And I said, no, actually, I don't. And and he said, look, well, um, you know, I'm, I'm the managing director. And I said, well... If, if you are the managing director, you'd be, you'd be, you know, obviously proud of the job I'm doing at the moment because you're paying me to actually check from a security perspective. Um, but the way he looked down on me, I just remember that moment where he kind of, I don't know, it was this real moment where I can remember it vividly is that, you know, A, I don't want to be, not, I want to make more of myself than the way that he spoke and, and, and looked at me at that moment. And I think it was a real a catalyst at the same time is uh, not, not from an ego perspective, but I think when I, at that moment it was a time I knew it was time to come home yep. as well. 
So it, it was interesting. You have these kind of memories where you're doing all these jobs, but I think at, at some stage in your life, you know, you're ready to roll and you're, you're ready to kind of roll up the sleeves and get onto that next stage. And so that's what you did. You came in, you start building a business. You got some, set by the sounds of it, some pretty strong building blocks. Um, what did you know about business back then? What did you understand and think business was actually about? It's, it's, it's really interesting. I, you know, you learn... I think when, you know, so a lot of it is around um, you don't know what you don't know. And I, I think that the absolute beauty of being young is naive naivety and, and getting yourself into traffic. So, I mean, you look back now and you think about what you what you do. And, and my, my, my first business was my mum was a, a, a loss prevention officer for coal supermarkets. And she used to come home and tell me all the war stories around how she used to apprehend um, various different types of walks of life. She's apprehended nearly 10,000 people. Now she should write a book, right? And well, I still go into a shop with her. She's 78 and she'll go, look over there, you know, right hand, you know, left pocket. And I'm like, mum, we're just bloody getting milk. But she, she used to tell me all the war stories. And then, so I wrote a course when I was in my early 20s, 22, I think, around how to reduce shoplifting. Um, and I went around and I sold that to all the local small businesses and then one day um, I made a call to Franklin Supermarkets and uh, my printer gave me the number and said, look, um, I said, look, I, I can help you reduce shoplifting. Um, I run these courses. And he said, yeah, no worries. I'd, I'd, um, that sounds interesting. Can I come and visit the office? Absolute startup story, cliche, in the pyjamas in mum's spare room, thought possibly not a good idea. <laughs> Met him in um, a Greensboro food court where you have all the good meetings, the power meetings. And I remember he asked me this question and he said, you know, uh, th this sounds really good. He goes, as part of your services, do you offer covert loss prevention officers? And I thought to myself, this is a defining moment. So I said, yes, of course we do. <laughs> and then, you know, what happens when you get yourself in the trouble? You ring your mum. So I remember that night I did this dodgy PowerPoint presentation and, you know, I got mum and all her friends and we started one of the first outsourced COVID loss prevention businesses in Australia at the yeah. time. Yeah. Little did I know. Um, so I think sometimes when you're naive, you're not overthinking about it at that age. Um, you kind of get yourself into traffic. Um, I mean, two years later, I had nearly 200 staff. Yeah, it's a great story. Which was my MBA. Um, probably had an ulcer by the time I was 24, 25, you know, mortgage mum's house because of cash flow, which was just a phenomenal um, gesture for her and, and one that you just, I, you know, it could go so wrong the other way as well. Um, so when you think about business in those times, I think, you know, when you're young, you, you, you kind of naively and bravely kind of throw caution to the wind. And, and you kind of start working it out and, and, you know, you look back now and you cringe at a lot of things, but, you know, it, it gave me the, the runway and the self-belief, I think, to kind of go on in, in my career as well. The, the antidote, the, the last little bit of that story is with um, the, the, the gentleman who gave me the first opportunity, he eventually came on to, to head up my business. So wow. a really interesting, um, a really interesting kind of turn of events and, uh, it was a fantastic. It was a fantastic time in my life as well because you, you know, you, you're just learning so much at that stage, and you just don't know about risk because you, you haven't really experienced it. So knowing what you know now, if you were placed in the same 
situation, would you mortgage your mum's house to help fund your first business? You know, I think what happened was it was based on cash flow because you're paying the guards weekly because they were really living hand to mouth. Um, we won all of Woolworths, Coles, Bilo, Meyer, all their retail security, which is quite, you know, when you look back, you go, how on earth did that actually happen, right? Um, so it was, I think, you know, sometimes if you can kind of isolate emotion and logic, if I actually put it with my logical mind, it was just a cash flow issue. Yeah. I didn't have any alternative issues, right? So it actually wasn't risky. My emotive side, though, at the time is like, God, mum could end up in a cardboard box on Flinders Street, right? And and you just think you could lose the house and a whole range of different things. So if I, if I think about that, uh, I, it, it wasn't risky, but at the same time, I wish I had I had a better mentor or I had been plugged into people that could have given me greater advice um, that could have supported me through that time. And I probably started making decisions based on emotion rather than logic based on that. So you get out of that business. You have a have a good exit. You're, what, 26, 27? 20, yeah, mid-20s, 25 odd. Took me three years to grow that, yeah. And then, you know, obviously you want to continue to challenge yourself. Um, once you've got out of that, you've had a bit of a win. How do you look at yourself then and look at what your next uh, mountain to climb is? It was a really challenging stage, I think, because you, I actually believe I'd ran out of tools in my tool belt. Um, you know, and I think the challenge, you know, with life as well in these situations is you can start assigning genius and creating a narrative to what you just did. So I think, you know, there is actually a real risk after you have a success is that you start to overreach and think you can influence things that you can't. Because a lot of the things is you start to underestimate is how luck and timing play a part in this. Um, so you need that, that humility and having that bit of paranoia is actually a strength. Whereas, um, I, so I, I just realised at that stage is I'd ran out of tools in my tool belt. So I thought I went and studied. So I, I, I joined um, an entrepreneurial program at MIT and that set me on a, on a journey for the next eight years. I, go, I went to the US and studied and I surrounded myself with entrepreneurs and business people and I shamelessly was inspired by what they did and, 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 and you know, the one o'clock at the bar, having a beer and, and understanding. So I went and uh, I went and did, I started it in, in Boston and then I set myself a goal of between first and second year to find a business and, and to start it. So I just started putting more tools on the tool belt ready to, to try and go again. And that's happened uh, a little bit later down the path. You've come across Franklin Scholar. There, was, there might have been a few other little bits in between, but this was a this was a, a next big one. How did you seek out this opportunity? Franklin Scholar was interesting because um, I learned uh, through this course around debt um, and, you know, responsibly um, looking at debt. And a, and a gentleman told a story about a grape swallowing a watermelon. And I still remember it. And it was this kind of, can you leverage debt responsibly? Um, and it, it set me on this philosophy around the risk of startup very on very early on is that one to three years is high risk. You're not taking any money out. Um, you know, you don't have enough humans, to, you know, part of your team to be able to do things. And it was like, well, can you have a vision and have a startup vision and buy an asset, 
right? And use that as a platform to be able to use your entrepreneurial vision on top of that. And can you con consolidate some of these to be able to scale quicker? So with that, it was um, that that set me on a, on a on a journey, and I looked at education um, again, and particularly around workforce education. There was different funding in different states, and without to bore everybody, but it was an, a, a major organisation couldn't have consistency in traineeships and apprenticeships. So the 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 the, um, the idea was how do we make the complex how do we make the complex simple and the simple compelling for workforce education in Australia, and that set set me on a on a journey to do some consolidation and, and build a business um you know and it was an amazing journey and i look back on that time mate and it was timing as well you know it was um you know 2007 2008 um uh, you know the government was encouraging people to upskill um there was a uh, 3000 odd businesses but very fragmented and you know it was it was a time which it was very fortunate to bring the right people together at the right time to solve the right problem, um, and it was a very very fortunate time. And you mentioned those years there, and you also mentioned debt. And I'm sort of trying to think back and thinking, how do you get debt? Wasn't this around the time of the great credit crunch as well? It, it was really it, we basically uh, had just closed maybe three weeks before the real kind of crunched. Because everything stopped, just seized, yeah. It was just, it, and it was amazing. And um, we, you know, this is where, you know, people are so important, who comes in your journey. And, you know, um, a gentleman by the name of Richard Forbes from 333 Capital, who's become pretty much my biggest confidant in business over the last 12 years, you know, I didn't even know what a covenant was, you know, and I'm putting my hand up here around, you know, debt, and but I had an idea and I knew what the opportunity was to execute as a practitioner, but I didn't have those skills and, and Rich really helped me and with his network as well, kind of pull it together. I mean, in the end, you know, we we were, you know, it was probably upwards of fifteen to twenty million dollars in debt, you know, and and we were one of the first um, deals non-recourse at that time as well. So it was, it was an, you got it. So when you look back now and you say, God, you know, you know, well done, Ryan, what a genius, you know, you go back and go, God, it was a sliding door moment at each different stage. Um, so that, that, you know, so when I look back on those times as well, yeah, it was, it was, it could have gone both ways, but again, it, it went our way, which was terrific. And, and looking back on it, what do you reckon's one of the, the, pieces of glue that helps bring other people and other organizations along for the ride i mean you know you say it was compelling you got a good story you're a you know very natural storyteller um but what what, what do you reckon some of that magic dust that helps align people with your vision is you know i um i i feel if we could spend a lot of time and i i, I think i i try and think deeply and I feel like I know who I am and what my skills are, right? Back to kind of the education question at the start. So very early on, you know, I, I created, I found two gentlemen that became kind of co-founders with me. Um, one was a, a chemical engineer who ran one of the, you know, at ExxonMobil who ran their largest retail arm. And another guy was a half glass empty kind of ex-auditor South African. Um, and, and so I had an amazing operational person, amazing financial person, and I guess I was maybe the visionary. And then 
once you've got great people that can compliment you, I think part of it is, you know, everybody in life, I, I feel, wants to be part of something, you know, and I think as a leader, the real, our real job is how do we create an environment for people to do their life's best work, right? Sounds corny, but I think that's what it really is, is and, and that is because people define themselves by what they do, you know, so if we're, if we're creating this environment we were really trying to solve a real problem out there, and that was upskilling a, a people to, to, to in, a, in a changing environment. Um, and and then then it was so I feel like it was understanding the right people, creating a vision, um, being beyond just being an education business. We at the same time we were actually for each um, um, percentage of revenue we created two schools in India. We've still we named it um, after a company. We've got ne- nearly 700 um, um, young girls still going through that school. I sent my team on there because people want to, you know, and, and it was passionate because I wanted to do it, but you need to create an environment, I think, where people feel like they can um, kind of do their life's best work and they can um, really feel the values of the company. Yeah, that's great. Um, so you do incredible work for three or so years. Uh, and then you have another good exit, um, sell it out to part of the Washington Post group. Um, so you're back to America again. But from memory back in the day, I don't know if it's right, so you might have to correct me. I remember just getting like an email from you uh, saying, you know, I'm, I'm done, I'm out, it's been sold. And it was, it was like a, a pat on the back and a see you later kind of thing in the same uh, at the same time, is it fair to say you sold that and basically handed over the keys to the business and you were done? It was. It was, um, I think, you know, by the time I was ready, my COO and the CFO, they were very operational in the business. And I think, you know, I'm I'm very good on the first, I'm on the growth. I mean, I love that part. And I think my skills aren't in the other part of it. And I think when the business got to that stage where we were, we were educating nearly 25,000 people. Um, it was, it was, you know, it was a, it was a, a you know, a grown-ups business, you know, and it needed the right type of management team in place. So at that stage then, you know, and I had other things, you know, that I, I wanted to do as well. It was really hard um, time as well because you're very emotional because you've sold what the vision is and you've made so many pers- deep personal connections. Um, but at that time as well, I had $50 in the bank. Um, you know, we'd put everything into that business and I looked at my three kids or two kids and third on the way and my wife and, I, and, and it was a generational change. I'm very middle class um, coming from Eltham, you know, and it was, it was a defining moment for my family as well. So it was a, maybe it was a step change in even for a generational for us. So, you know, when you start kind of building that in, um, it, it was the right decision. You know, one of the questions that I wanted to ask is, you know, you've left a couple of businesses and no doubt you'll leave ones in the future. When you do, what do you reckon is the hardest thing to do? Say goodbye to staff, say goodbye to the the business or you just that adrenaline drops off as well from the cut and thrust of building a business. What's the hardest thing, do you think? I think it's um, I get highly emotive with my team like I think hopefully if you ask anybody that I've 
that have been in, in the trenches with, you know, you, 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 everyone gives a lot of yourself and it's like you're on this mission together and you're closer to them than your family some days. Um, so I think that, but the, on the other, on the other hand is, you know, I also realized, particularly when I walked away from Franklin Scholar, you, you know, you do associate a lot of ego because you define yourself through, through your businesses sometimes. But when, when you look back, um, when I left, people get on with life, Yeah, <laughs> you know, and, you know, and sometimes you can, you know, you, you, you'd be really disappointed how much other people are really thinking about you. Uh, and, and, I, and, it's, and it's quite true. So I think on one hand, you know, um, you invest so much and with people and, you know, part of these areas is when you, you know, hopefully our businesses have changed a lot of people's lives, both within the business and the ones that were kind of the businesses themselves. So I think that's really hard is that moment is you've, you've, you've kind of created this vision and brought all these people on a journey um, but at some stage, you just know that you're not the right person to take it to, to the next level and, 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 and just making sure that, again, you just lead with, um, with transparency around those types of reasons um, as well. But it's, it's, always a, it's always a tricky one. Let's get on to sports. So, you know, you've had some good wins in business, you know, done some study, built yourself up with your, your skills and your knowledge. And then all of a sudden you decide to dip your toe into one of Melbourne's oldest cultural institutions, the, the Carlton Football Club, and try and bring it kicking and screaming into the, the digital age. Is this, was this an intimidating thing to do, to try and uh, sit around the, the boardroom table with old school Melbourne and try and kick a few heads in? You know, it was, um, it was a really um, interesting time. So... Uh, I mean, I, growing up in Eltham, I used to go around the back, backyard kicking the footy, you know, Bazasto, Kenny Hunter, you know, all, you know, all those days. And I, 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 I wrote down every stat. I mean, I was just fanatical. And when I used to kick the footy around the backyard, one day this lady popped her head over the back, the back fence. Her name was Barbara and she lived behind. And she goes, I hear you all the time screaming out these Carlton people's names. I work down the club. This is 1986. She goes, would you like to come down to training? And I said, oh, my God. You know what I mean? I, I, I was, yeah, I'd love to. So I went down to training. That would have been uh, Stephen Kernahan's first year at the footy club as well. And the, the year that we played Hawth in the grand final, she then um, came the next day over the fence. Um, we made the grand final in 1986, and she gave myself and my dad a grand final ticket. No way. And, and I, I look back on that and that, you know, you think about that one act, you know, I, you know, I went and thanked her beyond what, when actually it all transpired. It made me even more passionate about the football club. So I, I, in 2002, I decided I wanted to get more involved um, and, and I started joining some of the coteries. Um, but I also wanted to, I think from a very early age, I wanted to be involved in the club and I knew I was never going to play there. So I set my task in 2002 and just, but I just thought I've got to earn the right to do that. So how can I kind of add value? And, and then, uh, yeah, 213, 214, um, you know, it was a really interesting time. It's, it's harder to get off a board than get on them. Um, and, uh, it's, it was a really challenging. So I, I was able to get on the board and um, it was a really, I guess, a, a transitional time for the club as well with, um, with Sticks looking to transition out um, and a whole range of stuff. But 
know, I was down there for just under two years and, and vice president at the time. And um, it, it was an amazing, ex- it was an amazing experience uh, and, and one that I look back on fondly, but probably one that um, I, mean, I was probably putting as, as, and that's why I respect board members down there, you know, 20, 30 hours a week in the end there. And, you know, I guess uh, when uh, a few things transpired, I had to look at, you know, this is, you know, another five, six years that I probably won't see the young kids and get involved in their sport. And I probably made one of the most challenging experiences and, uh, and I walked away. Um, and, and now more modern sports, esports. So you're in there with uh, Fortress. I mean, obviously COVID's uh, provided a few challenges, but uh, what do you think? You know, you're running around in your backyard kicking a footy, uh, saying Bazasto, Jezelenko, and now you've got kids sitting in a room playing games. I mean, times have changed massively. How do you, how do you sort of reconcile supporting that as a sport compared to what we grew up with in the backyard? It's taken me. It took me a while to reconcile it. What actually happened is uh, I got invited to um, a tournament in 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 New South Wales. And there was 15,000 people in this stadium watching esports. And I went there with my nephew and they were wearing the club colours just like we're going to watch a Carlton Collingwood match. And what what amazing thing with esports is that it, it is actually the democratisation of a sport. Like we can argue what a sport actually is, but anyone in any house can kind of play it. And, you know, when... I got involved in a, in a club in Australia called Order and I, I, and I did it purposely because I just want to, you can't have an opinion if you don't understand it, right? So I, I was very fortunate to, to become a shareholder and um, become, jump on the board. And I remember like uh, we were look, our League of Legends team, I looked at the stats and it said, you know, in the first, you know, two splits, there was, you know, 10 million people watched the team, right? And I'm like, well, uh, you know, I, it just blew me away That's because of this, the, the global reach and, you know, and you start thinking about where the world is going to head. So the question becomes, it's not not going to happen. It's happening. How do we actually start reconciling around, you know, wh- wh- what's right and wrong in these areas? Like how much, like kids on electronics, I mean, it does our head in, Right. But this is how they communicate now. And so I think it's about how do we create values and trust and and start to live with it. Um, so I really got involved because I wanted to understand it more. And then and that's why we, we kind of got involved in Fortress with um, with John and Adrian is, is how do you create more community around that now as well and creating, you know, the largest um, gaming kind of games and esports venue in the Southern Hemisphere it's like this is this is a, a a spot a community where people now can come back together for, for for the passion of game and gaming, and it's and and that's not just video games. It's board games. It's a whole range of other areas, and it's and it and what you don't know is it touches most households in Australia. So I'd much rather be involved in understanding and having empathy and working through it then i guess being a naysayer jumping from you know the bleachers kind of poo-pooing it all the time so uh, there's a really good documentary that you might have seen on netflix a six-part series about video games yes have you started watching it yeah yeah absolutely yeah the last the last episode's all about uh um you know esports as well so 
I think, uh, I don't know whether it's paid for by the esports industry, but it's pretty interesting. When you think Twitch has got a uh, several billion dollar valuation for watching people playing video games, you realise yeah, sometimes when the tide washes in, it washes over all of us. Call of Duty, that franchise is, I think, bigger than Marvel. So it's kind of like it's, it's an exciting time to be part of it as well. I feel in some way um, being very small part of pioneering how that kind of looks within Australia, which is, um, you know, which is really interesting. You've got Adventus now. Um, you're spending most of your time in there currently. Um, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the speed at which this business is growing and COVID might have been a, a good facilitator in that. From your perspective, what's the secret to aligning um, scale in both sales and partnerships? Yeah, it's, um, again, timing is everything, you know, at, at the moment, you know, there's 1,100 students, 1,100,000 students will actually go and start their international education and 70% of them will choose a recruitment agent to actually go to. The irony is that each recruitment agent on average has between 10 and 30 institutional partnerships. So you go there, say, with my daughter to be placed in the university and they've got limited inventory. So what happens is, say, in Australia, one in six students that actually land will change institution because it wasn't the right fit. And the question was, how do we actually start looking, thinking that differently? And at the same time, you've got a university in the US trying to create, find students in Malaysia or Indonesia or Kenya, China, and they're having to get on planes. And it just felt like the infrastructure wasn't in place. So... Yeah, we've created a platform, a marketplace, which basically manages inventory on behalf of global universities and then gives access to recruitment partners all around the world to be able to support the student and place them into um, the right university. And, you know, it's my first real international business. CG Spectrum is um, in, in multiple countries, but this is like boots on the ground. We've got, we've grown from 18 to 160 in the team in the last, you know, 10 months. It's unbelievable. We've signed up 700 global institutions, which represents nearly 400,000 seats. And we're signing up close to 60 to 70 channel partners globally a day currently. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's just the same challenges, but, you know, you've got the nuances of different countries now and, and you know, it's fascinating and, and it just becomes, you know, talent. You know, it's finding the right talent. And, again, I think with the timing, we've got the right timing. Um, we've, we want to genuinely transform how the industry sources education. Um, so it's a really exciting stage. And the best thing is I founded it originally with my brother, um, and, 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 you know, and to be in the trenches with your brother day in, day out. And then we've got another two co-founders, um, Richard Duran and, and Victor as well. It's, it's, a, it's a very exciting time for us at the moment. Well, that was my next question, you know, working with your brother, what's it like? And, you know, how, to, how do you sort of walk that tightrope between, uh, you know, not, not being like brothers and punching on in public or treating each other too harshly or unfairly or differently? How do you, how do you manage that? So Lincoln went a different route and he became, a, he got like 98% radiator. Like he, 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 so if you think about me and think about the opposite and there's Lincoln. 
So I've just got so much respect. He became a, one of, a really one of the youngest kind of lieutenant commanders in the Navy, then became a scientist and worked on some of the biggest supercomputer projects um, with the CSIRO, right? So he's, he's like, you know, all the right brain stuff. And, um, and, and I think we've just got such respect for each other. He's operational and it, he allows me to do what I'm good at and I allow him to do what he's good at. And you've got, and we're just so driven by the same values and trust. So um, our father passed away, you know, roughly eight years ago. So my brother left the Navy, left a career because we kind of said, well, you know, he said, is this my life for the next, you know, 10, 20 years? And we've always said we wanted to create some legacy together. So he took the leap of faith and, and we kind of came together. So there's this underlying really want beyond business to do something together that we look back on in our lives. So I think that's a huge driver for us as well that keeps us going. And I feel that our organisation feels that, is that it's this is not just business. This is we want to literally transform an industry. Um, and I think it's, it's almost like I reckon it's the last dance this one made. <laughs> and uh, it's all the culmination of all the learnings um, and I'm trying to be really present and in the moment in this experience and trying to enjoy it at the same time, being in the fetal position late yes. at night, rocking, <laughs> rocking, thinking how, why have I done it again? But there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a beautiful synchronicity to this business and, and, I, and I'm enjoying that. I think back to uh, coffees you and I might've had, I don't know, a decade ago with Franklin Scholar at Pound uh, yes. down in the Elstonwick and, uh, I think you, yeah, you seem a lot calmer these days, Ryan, than you did back then when that was going on. You just have a, a very calm disposition, whereas then you were a billion miles an hour. Now you're only a million miles an hour. Well, I had hair back then, kind of. <laughs> I've not, I've not, not really. <laughs> I've got too much wine now as well. But, um, you know, no, I, I, I feel like as you get older as well, maybe getting a bit deep, is that. You know, you, you discount so much time when you're younger because you've got so much more in front of you. I look at myself now, like I'm 47 this year. Mate, I'm 13 years till I'm 60, right? So I'm valuing current time a lot more now, right? And 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 based on that, you know, um, uh, you you start kind of treating that a little bit differently and how you interact with time and space. I think, you know, and and so for me now, it's like what's the essential few rather than for the important many and where where can I really contribute best uh, at the moment and doing it with people that I actually want to do it with, you know, that kind of no idiot policy. Yes. Um, so we're really, you, you get to know yourself and, uh, and, and you also know yourself where you're just terrible and lousy at now and you continue to bring good people around. So the journey's exciting. Still, still risk in so many different areas, mate, as well. So I don't want to completely paint it as uh, a complete kumbaya moment. But we're we're it's it's we're in that beautiful sweet spot at the moment of you know growth and and now it's just making sure we can deliver what we promise. So now we go from you've 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 brought that to a very nice point, a bit of philosophy, a bit of reflection, a bit of introspection. Uh, now we go from that the heavy to the real light, the quick fire round. Who's been a professional inspiration to you? I mean, you mentioned the guy from 333 Capital. I actually try and find people at the right time, right? So with Franklin Scholar, there's a guy, Mark Carnegie, 
who we know, right? So I, Mark used to take me out for lunch. I would take him out for lunch and he would pick me apart. I mean, I used to walk out on my hands and knees just kind of wanting to maybe jump in front of a bus because he, he kept me kind of thinking, you've got to think about this. This is going to happen. This is what are going to happen. So I think, you know, you've got that. And then, you know, within, um, you know, the journey at the moment, I feel like there's a, 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 a one of my board mer- members, Karen Kemper, who, you know, he, he gives me other perspectives. So I think, you know, when I think about inspiration, I feel like it's consistently trying to find people that challenge your thought. Yeah. Because you, you can have so many people in life say yes and, yeah, it sounds like a great idea. I value people now as much as I don't like it and, I'm, and I might spit the dummy at times who can continue to challenge you. So my inspiration isn't one. It, it's probably more along the lines of finding people along the journey at the right time. Nice. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever said to you? Jeez, mate. I, I you know, I kind of, I, I kind of look back. I don't know. I think, you know, I think there's, there's been people and it's, I don't want to sound cliche, but I've got such great bonds with people in my team. I think, you know, saying that was probably some of the happiest times of my life that we were, you know, in those moments in business. Um, had this amazing, you know, um, person who worked on my team, Janet, um, who was in, in, in Franklin Scholar. And I just remember saying, you know, it was just some of the most happiest moments, you know, and I think those are the times that you, you really, I enjoy those moments. I think it's those people where you'd actually know that you're actually creating an environment that's human that um that people are, you know people have only got limited time mate you want them to make sure that they feel like that, that they're spending it well yep agreed if you got hit by a bus today and killed uh what is the one thing you would say is that bus is bearing down on you oh shit i wish i'd done that i have very little regrets I feel like I have, I said to Rach the other day, probably on my third glass of red, um, I, you know, I feel like I've lived a real charm life, right? Even though my, my dad passed away and my daughter had cancer within a six month period, I still look back on that time as going, it gave me a, a wake up call and look at as a really um, enhancing part of my life as a human. So I think it would possibly be I haven't tried to influence another industry. It's not personal stuff because I reckon I've done it. I've, I've, I've really, with my kids, I feel good, my wife, family and friends. But I think I'd like to try my hand uh, at another industry to see if what I've been able to learn has, can be applied into something else. A great question, Tony. I wish you'd have asked me that. I could have looked a lot smarter. <laughs> You've got me on the hop for that one, mate. Oh, I've got, got another one that might put you on the hop. Who's your favourite footballer? Uh, so I, 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 I've the most I always love watching was um, Peter Bazasto in those sixty odd games that he played. Right, I think around just pure excitement. Yeah, and then I used to love watch Kenny Hunter. Kenny, used, Kenny actually came and was part of one of my business's teams for two or three years. And I, I reckon uh, we used to do road trips and stuff. And I, I was just like, I've, I most boy. bloody um, duffel coat on with the number on the back with the badges. I was such a fanboy. But, you know, it was, you know, I look at those kind of two players. Favourite food? 
My favorite food would have to be, um, I just love seafood. So, you know, you, you give me um, some prawns, some scallops and some lobster. I had a, in India, I had tandoor lobster, right, That's in the, Goa. Mm, and, during, and, and they put it in the oven mm. with the, in the tandoor and it was just like, that's probably seafood and a, and, a, and a glass of white. That sounds beautiful. Uh, well, that might lead into the next uh, answer. If you could go anywhere in the world now for lunch, and you can't, but if you could, where would you go? Um, you know, that's a big, it's a big question, mate. Uh, it would probably be maybe somewhere like in Italy, in Puglia, you know, just kind of one of those towns um, with with my family, um, breaking bread, you know, um, overlooking, you know, uh, looking over the ocean and just, just that amazing produce. I think what, you know, in Europe, it's just like family, you know, it, you know, I think my happiest moments is, you know, those moments you have an out of body experience and you're sitting around the, t- everyone's around the table and you just, you sit there, you're at your happiest. So I think it'd be around a beautiful meal somewhere in Puglia or somewhere like that having kids running around and having an amazing meal and a couple of glasses of red. You're killing me. I think this time last year we were in Italy, uh, the four <laughs> of us, so no such luck this year. Uh, finally, Ryan, what advice would you give to aspiring or young entrepreneurs or first-time founders? No, I think it's um, it, you've just got to get into traffic. I think at the end of at the end of life, you kind of look back on and I think it's like you're going to regret a lot more what you didn't do. And I, I think there's so many people that have got so much potential that want to do something. Saying that, not everyone wants to be an entrepreneur as well. If everyone wants to be an entrepreneur, the world would just be busted, right? You know, so I think, you know, you, so I, I would say that at the end of the day, you don't want to be, you know, um, ready, aim, 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 aim. you just got to get into traffic and where you think you're going to start is generally not where you're going to end up. So when you, with all these assumptions, tear them up. You know, they're, they're going to be torn up as you kind of get in there. So I would just say, if, if, if you feel that this is a yearning, that you really want to do something, you just got to start, you know. And, and then I always kind of say, is what is the absolute worst case? And if I can swear on the, on the podcast, I don't know, mate, but I always kind of use that kind of saying, you know, in three years' time, if it shit itself, what would it kind of look like? And if you can deal with that, right? Because we fear so much around like what could happen or the unknown. The reality is, is once you're in it, 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 it you know, it, you kind of you kind of work it out. So I'd say that, you know, there there is you, we only live once. Um, you know, what is the worst thing could happen? Lean into it and 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 kind of have a go at it and find and and understand that you don't need to have all the answers with it as well i mean the idea of being an entrepreneur is is not that you have to have all the answers it's about kind of aligning people around a vision um and 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 trying to create that mission around what that is and pulling in the right people at the right time to actually do it so i'd just say pretty simple stuff mate kind of have a go have a crack get in there exactly well, Ryan, as always, uh, a learning experience, a pleasure to catch up with you. Great to uh, speak with you and thanks for giving up your time and thank you for being on Discipline. Awesome, mate. I really appreciate it. And, and those questions, mate, you got me on the hop, but no, <laughs> terrific experience. Thanks very much, mate. 